If you have a Bible, take it out and find 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you've been reading through the New Testament with us, this last week we read 1 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Our passage is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 to verse 9. And I want to say a couple of things on the front end. I want to say something about Paul, and I want to say something about a man named Apollos, and then I want to say something about the situation in Corinth, at the church in Corinth, and then I'll give you the big idea and we'll jump into this particular passage. So let's start with Paul. Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey, and he stayed in Corinth for approximately 18 months. That was a long time for Paul to stay in one place. His typical practice was to take a team of men to go to a new town, to start a church, and then to leave someone in charge that he had trained and prepared and equipped to take over that congregation. When Paul went to Corinth, almost immediately he faced serious, significant opposition. And his inclination was to say, i got to start this church, leave it in good hands, and i got to get out of here because I'm a lightning rod. But God told him, I want you to stay put. I have people in this town, I know you're going to be opposed, but I want you to stay put. Paul stayed put. He spent a significant amount of time in Corinth teaching, preaching, not only teaching and preaching, but also pastoring and building a relationship with these people. So that's Paul. Now let me say something about Apollos. Apollos was a Jewish man who grew up in a city called Alexandria. Alexandria was located on the northern coast of Egypt. It was a coastal city. That's where Apollos grew up. He was eloquent, meaning he was easy to listen to. He was a good public speaker. The Bible says he was competent in the Scriptures. He knew the Bible, and he was teachable. He wasn't just smart about the Bible, but he was smart about the Bible, and he was willing to be taught about the Bible, which made him smarter about the Bible and a better teacher of the Bible. And after Paul left, Apollo spent time preaching and teaching at the church in Corinth. If you were here a few weeks ago, Jake Graves preached. He did a great job. He talked about Acts 18, and he talked about this city of uh, Alexandria, and he talked about Apollos, and he told us that Alexandria had the world's largest library at the time. It was an absolutely remarkable city. There were people from all over the world who lived in Alexandria. There was a large Jewish population, and Apollos was one of those Jews who lived in Alexandria, and then later he spent some time teaching and preaching in Corinth. That brings us to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 17, and the first problem that we read about with the church in Corinth. The problem was fighting. The problem was factions. The problem was disagreement within the church about who their favorite or who the most influential teacher was in their lives. And there were two main groups, but there were actually four groups in total. One group of people said, Paul is our guy. Paul started this church. He's the founding pastor of First Baptist Church Corinth. We are forever loyal to Paul. Then there was another group that said, hey, Paul's great, but he is not a great preacher. And Paul himself in the New Testament admits that he wasn't a great preacher. And they say, Apollos is really the guy who gave shape 
to this church. Apollos is the guy whose teaching and his ability to communicate and his eloquence, God used that in a great way in my life and in the life of this church. We are really more loyal to Apollos. And then you had a group, a smaller group, that said, well, we like Peter. Peter is the leader of the apostles. Jesus said Peter would be the rock upon which the church would be built. Peter, uh, Peter preached the very first sermon in all of church history back on the day of Pentecost. We're on Team Peter. And then you had a group of real spiritual snobs that said, we're on Team Jesus. And it had nothing to do with their loyalty to Jesus. It had everything to do with their desire to get one up on all these other three groups. And it's entirely possible, let's admit this, it's entirely possible that there were people, maybe Jewish people, in this congregation in Alexandria, it's a coastal city, would have been very common for them to travel the Mediterranean. Perhaps some of them sailed east some 20 years earlier, and perhaps some of them sailed to Jerusalem. And perhaps while some of them were there, they heard an itinerant rabbi named Jesus teach, and they were there for the Sermon on the Mount or one of the other discourses Jesus gave. You may have people in the church in Corinth who said, look, you can have Paul all you want. You can have Apollos all you want. Forget about Peter. I heard Jesus preach. I'm on team Jesus. And in this church, these power groups were fighting and they were arguing about who they were loyal to. Are you part of this group? Are you part of that group? And it was literally, as silly as it sounds to us, it was literally tearing this church apart. You can imagine a scenario. Some of you have lived through scenarios like this where there is a transition in a pastor where one pastor leaves a church and a new pastor comes to the church. And many times in that scenario, groups form. And one group says, well, the new guy's fine, but the old guy, can we just get him back? And then another group says, the old guy left us. Who cares about him? We got this new guy that wants to be here. We like this guy. And it can cause friction within a church really, really quick. That was happening in Corinth. That brings us to our passage. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9. The big idea is very simple and is very important. Salvation is from the Lord. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter. It's not from Landon. It's not from any previous pastor at Emmanuel. It's not from any previous pastor you've had in any of the churches you've been a part of. Salvation is from the Lord. Take your copy of the Scriptures and let's read what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. I swear to God, let's pray together. Lord, this morning we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand the situation in Corinth. Help us to understand what Paul was saying to this church. And Lord, above all, help us to understand how this situation and the words that Paul wrote, the words that your Spirit inspired, how these words apply to our lives today here at Emmanuel in Odessa, Texas in the year 2022. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a quick poll, just a quick show of hands, and I'm going to ask if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you to vote at least once, no more than twice. And what I want you to think about is how you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the people or the circumstances or the situations that God used to bring you to faith in the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to try to put categories up on the screen that will sort of encapsulate some of the possibilities for our consideration this morning. So I'll go through these and then we'll vote. If you would say uh, parents or a grandparent, or a family member. That's sort of something that happened in your house. People that were part of your family, they were the ones who led you to Christ. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Maybe you would say it was something within a local church. It was my pastor, or it was my Sunday school teacher, or maybe even it was my VBS teacher. Something that happened within a local church setting, that was the key thing that God used to bring me to faith in Jesus. Maybe you would say it was a revival or a crusade. There was an evangelist that came in, or there was a a camp meeting of sorts, or there was an old-timey revival meeting, a week of revivals, and at one of those nights, that's when I came to faith in Jesus. Maybe you'd say it was a friend or a co-worker. It wasn't a family member. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't an evangelist. It was just another Christian who shared the gospel with me, and that was primary in me coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you would say it was the radio, or it was television, or it was the internet, or it was something I watched on my phone. I listened to a sermon. I downloaded a podcast. I watched a YouTube video. I dialed into FM 96.1 back in the day, whatever it may be. But it was some sort of media that God used to bring you to faith. Or some of you may just say, I read the Bible. A Gideon Bible in a hotel. Somebody gave me a copy of the Scriptures. Uh, I had a Bible from growing up, and I just read it. And reading the Bible, I came to faith in Jesus. So what I want to know, just show of hands, I want to ask you to vote once at least, if you're a follower of Jesus. I know that you look at that list, and some of you are like me, and you say, well, it was kind of lots of things. But I'm telling you, you only get two votes. Do not vote three times. You only get two votes. Okay? Number one, how many would say it was parents grandparents' family was key, primary in you coming to faith in Jesus. A lot of hands there. How many of you would say it was a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, something, someone within a local church setting? Okay? Less hands, but still quite a few. 
How many of you would say it was a revival, a Billy Graham something or other? It was some sort of big event? A few hands up for that. How many of you would say it was just a friend? Not a clergy person, not an ordained person, just a friend that shared the gospel with me. Quite a few hands there. Radio, TV, internet. Something you listened to, something you watched. A few hands. This is just like the early service. There were not many hands that went up for that one in the first service. And how many of you would just say it was just reading the Scriptures? Opening the Bible, reading the Bible, understanding the good news. Several hands for that. What I want you to do is think about the people that God used in your life to bring you to faith in the Lord Jesus if you are a Christian. And the question that I want to ask, the question I want to start with is, how should we think about those people? Because that was really the issue that was tearing this church apart. God had used both Paul and Apollos in great ways in this church. And in a strange twist, this church was using that good thing, that good gift from God to divide and to faction up and to fight and to argue and to bicker. So the question is, how should we think about those people, especially in light of what Paul says in verse 7? If your copy of the Scriptures is open, look at verse 7. He says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Paul isn't anything. Apollos isn't anything. Another way to say what Paul says in verse 7 is, we are nobodies. We are nothing. God is the one who gives the growth. So the question is, well, in my life, how should I think about the people that God used to bring me to faith in Jesus? Should I simply say, those people are nobodies. Those people aren't anything. Or should we think differently about those people? Let me give you two thoughts. The first is this. I think that we should thank God. Thank God for servants who shared the gospel with us because there is no salvation apart from the proclamation of the gospel. You understand that when Paul says, neither he who waters nor he who plants is anything, me and Apollos are nothing, he's talking to people who have put Paul or Apollos up on a pedestal where they do not belong. And what he's really saying to them is, get Paul and get Apollos off of that pedestal. We didn't do anything heroic for you. But in the grander scheme, in the wider scheme, you say they did do something important in Corinth. They brought the gospel. They brought the word of God to these people. And you and I ought to thank God. Almost all of you raised your hand just a moment ago saying that someone opened their mouth and shared the good news of Jesus with you. And what I'm saying is you should thank God for that person. Because apart from hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. That's Paul's logic in Romans 10. And it is airtight logic. Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is call on the name of Jesus for salvation. It was true in Paul's day and it's true today. This morning, if you did not raise your hand a moment ago, you can call on the name of Jesus for salvation and He will forgive you. He will save you. He will give you new life. 
How does that happen? Well, Paul says in Romans 10, first they have to believe before they can call on Him, and before they can believe, they have to hear, and before they hear, someone has to preach, and before they preach, someone has to be sent. All of those things have to happen in order for somebody to hear the good news of Jesus. And the airtight logic in Paul's argument is that if any one of those steps breaks down, no one will be saved. Which is why at the end of this logical argument, Paul quotes Isaiah 52 and he says this, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He does not say, those who preach the good news are nothing. Same Paul, same guy that wrote Romans, wrote this book that we're reading, 1 Corinthians. He doesn't say they're nothing. He says, what they did for us is a beautiful thing. If you follow his argument, he's saying it's an essential thing. They have to be sent. They have to preach. We have to hear. We have to believe. We have to call on the name of Jesus if we want to be saved. That must happen. The people that God used in your life and mine to bring us to faith in Jesus are essential, and what they did in our lives is a beautiful thing. And if you think that people who don't know Jesus are going to come to faith in Jesus apart from you and I opening our mouths to tell them the good news, you are as foolish as a person who expects our church to harvest soybeans from the front parking lot this fall. It's not going to happen. I guarantee you it's not going to happen. Nobody's plowed the ground. It's a parking lot. Nobody's planted any seeds. Nobody's watered those soybean seeds. Nobody's picked the weeds. It's a parking lot. There will be no harvest. If they're not sent and they don't preach and they don't hear and they don't believe and they don't call on the name of Jesus, there will be no salvation. So when you think about the people that God used in your life to bring you to faith in the Lord Jesus, you should thank God for those people. Those people were essential, and what they did in your life is a beautiful thing. Now here's the second thing that we need to put in place. We should put our faith in Christ and in Christ alone, not the imperfect servants God uses to bring the gospel to sinners. Put your faith in Jesus, not your pastor. Put your faith in Jesus, not the evangelist. Put your faith in Jesus, not your parents or your grandparents. God uses imperfect people to bring a perfect gospel message of salvation to sinners. We recognize that He uses those people. We thank God for them, but we don't put our hope or our faith or our trust in them. We put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says, Paul, nothing. Apollos, he's not anything. They are simply servants. They're slaves. Let me give you an illustration to help you make sense of this. This is not going to happen in your life today, but it could happen in your life tomorrow. Let's imagine you go to Chick-fil-A. You can go to Chick-fil-A today, but this isn't going to happen. 
You go to Chick-fil-A, you pull up to the drive-thru, it's going to be 800 degrees outside tomorrow. You're tired after VBS, you need a chicken sandwich. You pull in, those teenagers and young people are going to be out there working in the heat with their umbrella hats and their fans and their water bottles and their iPads, and they're going to take your order, and they're going to say, it's my pleasure, and you're going to say, this is the nicest place in the world, these people are so great. You're going to pull up to the window, and somebody is going to hand you a bag a white bag with red printing, and inside the bag there's a treasure. A great treasure. Do you know that nobody in the history of the world has gone through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and received their bag with the treasure and looked at that bag and said, oh, they crumpled my bag up. They wrinkled it. The top of the bag tore. Oh, I'm here for the bag. You're not there for the bag. You're there for the Lord's chicken. (laughs) Chicken sandwich, number one, waffle fries. Twelve count. That's what you're there for. No one cares about the bag. The bag is a vessel that gives you what you want. That's it. Paul says, look, Paul not anything. Apollos isn't anything. Did they play a role in God bringing salvation to you and to your church? Absolutely. But don't worry about Paul and don't worry about Apollos. They are imperfect, flawed servants. I would just draw your attention on this point to the Gospel of Luke. I gave you the reference that you can look up on your own. Jesus sends the 12 disciples out to preach. All 12 go out, which means Judas went out to preach. Judas went out and he told people about Jesus. He didn't stay back. He didn't skip. He went out. He told people about Jesus. All the 12 came back. They were amazed at what happened. They said, Jesus, we preached the good news of the kingdom. People believed. We cast out demons. We healed the sick. It was amazing. There's no indication that Judas did not participate in all that. He did participate in all that. Somebody came to faith in Jesus because of the preaching of Judas. And you know how Judas ended up. He was never a follower of Jesus to begin with. What if you were one of those people that Judas led to faith in Jesus? Well, hopefully your faith was in Jesus, not Judas. And hopefully your faith is in Jesus, not me. Not Paul, not Apollos. I came across a tweet in the last couple of weeks that really made me think about this issue of How do I think about the people that God used to bring me to faith in Jesus? How do I think about the people that God has used in my life to grow me and strengthen me? It was a tweet from a pastor named Josh Howerton in the DFW area, and I'm not going to put it on the screen, and I'm not going to read it exactly. I'm just going to paraphrase it. He said, there will come a time in your life where you must emotionally separate your faith in Jesus from the imperfect person that God used to bring you to faith in Jesus. You must make a separation. It's not that you say they're nothing. It's just that you understand the separation has to be made. And God uses imperfect people. It's all that He has to work with. You must make this separation. And He went on in the tweet and He said, Look, if you can't do this, 
If you cannot separate your faith in Jesus from the imperfect person that God used to bring you to faith in Jesus, at some point you will see just how imperfect that person is. Think Judas. Think your pastor. And you may be inclined to throw the whole thing in the trash if you can't make that separation. Then he said, if you won't make that separation... If you refuse to separate your faith in Jesus from the imperfect person that God used to bring you to faith in Jesus, if you just won't do it, you will likely never grow past the maturity of the person who led you to faith in Jesus. Because all the while, your hope will really be rooted in them, not the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you think about the people that God used in your life to bring you to faith in Jesus? They are flawed, imperfect people, all of them. Number one, you give thanks to God that somebody opened their mouth to tell you the good news about Jesus Christ so that you could hear, so that you could believe, so that you could call on the name of Jesus for salvation. Secondly, make sure that your faith is in Jesus, not the imperfect person that God used to tell you about Jesus. That question and those answers brings up another question that I want to think about with you. And the question is this. When I read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9, how does this shape the way I think about evangelism? This is just pulling back, looking a little bit wider at the issue. We're pulling back from our own experience and we're just thinking about evangelism broadly. How does this passage shape the way that we think about evangelism? Four quick thoughts. The first is that we aren't responsible for saving anyone. Do you know why? It's because we can't save anyone. I can't, parents, you can't, grandparents, you can't, Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders, you can't, people who go to Kenya on a mission trip, you can't. None of us can save anyone. Salvation is from the Lord. Paul's job was planting. Apollos' job was watering. But, verse 6, God gave the growth. Verse 7, God gives growth the growth. You can't save anyone. I can't save anyone. God can save anyone. Salvation is from the Lord. So we remember, number one, we're not responsible for saving anyone. When you remember that, I think it will remove pride from your life. The pride that you can convince someone to follow Jesus, you can argue them into the kingdom, that your story or your evangelistic technique is going to be enough to get them. You can't do that. Don't be so prideful to think you can. And I think when you understand this truth, it will remove despair from your life. Despair in thinking that person will never believe. There is nothing I could say that would change their mind. Guess what? You're right. Salvation isn't from you, and it's not from me. Salvation is from the Lord. God can change hearts. There's no place for pride. There's no place for despair. Here's a second truth. We're not responsible for answering every question. Yes, Peter says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. Be prepared to give an answer. But you don't have to be able to answer every question that someone might ask in order to tell them about Jesus. Thinking agriculturally, that's what this passage is about, agriculture. 
If you want to be a corn farmer, do you have to understand the molecular, cellular makeup of corn to grow corn? No. I'm pretty certain there's a lot of corn farmers that couldn't tell you anything about the cellular, molecular makeup of corn. They just put it in the ground, water it, it grows. If you want to be a wheat farmer, do you have to know the whole history from the beginning of of mankind farming? Do you have to be able to explain how wheat became a domesticated crop and we took these wild plants and bred that? Do you have to know that? No. Put the seed in the ground, water it, it grows. Do you have to be able as a Christian to answer every possible Bible Jeopardy question that someone might ask you? Do you have to be able to answer every theological question or philosophical question that somebody might raise to tell them about Jesus? No. You just have to be able to say, look, there is a God in heaven and He is holy. And you and me and all of us are sinful people. We've fallen short. And there is a person named Jesus, God in human flesh, who died on a cross for people like you and me. And He calls you to turn from your sin and to put your faith in Him. You don't have to be able to answer every question about the Bible to tell somebody that. God is holy, that we're sinful people, that Jesus is the answer, and that they need to repent and believe. Thirdly, we're not responsible for telling the entirety of the biblical story in every gospel conversation. I hope this is a relief to you, and I am quite certain it's a relief to your friends who don't know Jesus. When you try to talk to someone about Jesus, you don't have to say everything in every conversation. You don't have to schedule that lunch with that person and sit down and look at your watch and say, look, I'd really love to hear how life's going, but I got 30 minutes to tell you everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Are you ready? Here we go. You don't have to do that. When you teach a Sunday school class, if you're a teacher or you fill in, you don't have to say everything that could possibly be said in every single Sunday school lesson. Every sermon doesn't have to say everything that could possibly be said about the Bible. If you go to Kenya, you don't have to be able to say everything that could possibly be said to those people. You just have to plant a seed. Plant a true gospel seed. God is holy. We're sinful people. Jesus died for sinners. He calls you to repent and believe. Plant a gospel seed. Water a gospel seed. Now, there's several things we're not responsible for. Here's one thing we are responsible for. We are responsible for planting and watering gospel seeds. In the Old Testament, there was a man named Ezekiel. God called him to be a prophet. And God told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm making you a watchman over Israel. And Ezekiel, if you go and you tell the people what I'm asking you to tell them, you open your mouth, and if they don't listen to you, their blood will be on their heads because you opened your mouth. But Ezekiel... If you close your mouth and you refuse to say to the people what I'm telling you to say to them, if you don't open your mouth, Ezekiel, their blood will be on your head. Now, that's a military metaphor. Ezekiel's a watchman. 
Paul's giving us an agricultural metaphor, but it's making the same point. Your responsibility is planting gospel seeds with your kids, with your neighbors, with your co-workers, with the children at VBS this week, with the people you meet around on the other side of the world in Kenya. Your job is to plant true gospel seeds, to water true gospel seeds, and then to trust that God gives the growth. Only God gives the growth. But He doesn't give the growth until we plant the seed and we water the seed. Let me give you one more example of how this works. This summer is my eighth summer in Odessa, Texas. The first six summers that I spent in Odessa, I tried in vain to grow tomatoes in my backyard. Absolutely a waste. Now, these little bitty guys, little cherry tomatoes, grape tomatoes, you can, I can grow those by the bucket load all day long. But I'm talking about big, real tomatoes. Can't grow them. Tried for six years. Nothing. The plants look amazing. The flowers bloom. No tomatoes. Six years. Nothing. Two years ago, I got smart. Maybe I got lucky. I found the sweet spot in my backyard. I was in the wrong corner. It was too much sun. Wasn't a good spot. Wind hit it a lot. Moved it over by the fence. Had a nice little spot where I put some tomato plants up. They got shade part of the day. The plants grew like crazy. And there, after six years, here come real tomatoes growing. Real tomatoes. The squirrels in my backyard loved them. <laughs> loved them. I have a family of squirrels that live in the cinder block fence right outside my kitchen. You think I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. They ate every real tomato I grew for two years. Every one of them. Now, they didn't eat all of every tomato. Usually they eat about a third of it, and then they leave it on the sidewalk for you to see as mockery that they've ruined your tomato crop. And you just pick it up and throw it against the fence and say bad things about squirrels. Now this year, guess what? Nobody at my house has eaten real tomatoes because I didn't plant any. I'm on strike. And the squirrels are looking at me from the fence in the bedroom or in the, uh, the kitchen window where we eat breakfast. They're looking in. They're chirping at us. And they want to know, where's the tomatoes? Not going to be any tomatoes. I didn't plant them. I'm not watering them. So I'm not going to grow any. That's how it works. In agriculture, and that's how it works with the gospel. If you're not planting gospel seeds with your kids and your grandkids and your neighbors and your coworkers and the people you go to church with and the kids at VBS this week and the people in Kenya, if you're not watering gospel seeds, if you're not talking about the holiness of God and the reality of sin and the hope we have in Jesus and the importance of repentance and faith, if you're not talking about that stuff, guess what? There's not going to be a harvest. Not going to be any tomatoes at my house. There's not going to be a spiritual harvest among the people you know who don't know Jesus. Our responsibility. It's not saving, but it's planting gospel seeds and it's watering gospel seeds and it's trusting that God is the one who gives the growth.
Now, one last question for those of us who raised our hands earlier and voted. How should we respond to the gift of salvation? It's a gift. God gives the growth. How do we respond to it? Two thoughts. The first is this. We should pursue unity within our local church. And I bring this point to your attention because that's the point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 3. You're fighting about Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus, all these factions and fighting. Paul wants this church to be unified. And he's looking for unity. That's his point when he says, Paul is nothing. Apollos isn't anything. God is the one who gave the growth. For all the things that divide you, here's two things you have in common. Both the people in Corinth and the people in our church and our church with Corinth, all of us. Two things we have in common. We're all sinners. All of us. Every last one of us have fallen short. And secondly, the only hope we have for salvation is the grace of God through faith in Jesus. That's it. All of us share those things. You live in a culture today, whether you realize it or not, that wants to divide humanity. Everywhere you look, people want to divide humanity. It's the fruit of postmodernism come to fruition. We want to divide people into groups. We don't think of you as an individual. We only want to put you into a group. We want to put you into this racial group or that racial group. We want to put you into this gender group or we want to put you into that gender group or a third or a fourth or however many gender groups you want to come up with. We want to put you into this educational group or this group that lacks education. We want to put you into this socioeconomic group, the haves, or we want to put you into this socioeconomic group, the have-nots. We want to divide you. We want to put you into a group. We want you to put you into a group of privilege and power. We're going to put you into a group of being oppressed and having no power. And you get put into these groups, and we get all divided up. That's the aim of secular people in our world today. The way they think. Let's divide everyone up. Paul says, here's something that unites you. The good news about Jesus Christ. You're all sinners. And the only hope you have for salvation is the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And that unites you. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is, what your skin color is, what your education level is, what kind of job you do or don't do. None of those things matter. The gospel unites people. It doesn't divide people. You cannot buy into the myth of our world that we're supposed to be divided and opposed to each other. The gospel unites people. We're all sinners, and the only hope that we have is Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing. How should we respond to the gift of salvation? We should be committed to worship. When you gather together with people in this room on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, the aim is not to feel a certain emotion. The aim is not to have a certain experience. The aim is not to learn something new and have your intellectual curiosity satisfied. It's not to educate. It's not to produce some sort of feeling. The aim is worship. What is worship? It's the people of God gathering together to acknowledge 
who God is and what He's done for His people. It's the people of God gathering together to celebrate who God is and what He's done for His people. That's the aim of worship. Not your preferences, not my preferences, not a certain style of music or a different style of music, not were the lights and all the things just right. Did we acknowledge the truth about God and did we celebrate the truth about what He's done to save us? That's what worship is about. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's about recognizing that God is the one who gives the growth. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of our worship service. And these last two ideas are entirely tied up in what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Number one, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We don't just go home and do it around our dinner tables. We don't do it separated off into our Bible study classes. We do it together as the gathered church as a sign of unity. We're saying we're all sinners and we all find hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His life, His death, and His resurrection. It's a sign of unity. It's a reminder of unity. And it's an act of worship. It's not us coming to God bragging about how good we've been or admitting how good we've not been. It's about us coming to God and saying, God, you have gone to the greatest length to save us and to make us your people. You sent your Son to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and you've promised to send Him back for us. We're thanking God for that, and we're celebrating what He's accomplished. So this morning, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus... And if you've obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, you've not obeyed His command to be baptized, we ask that you not partake of the elements, but we encourage you, we plead with you to spend time this morning thinking about, praying about Jesus, thinking about your relationship to Jesus, thinking about the people that have planted gospel seeds in your life and watered gospel seeds in your life, our prayer for you is that even this morning God would give the growth. I'm going to give you a few moments to pray, to reflect, to think about the Scriptures, to thank God for what He's done to make us His people, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.